Well, as you can probably tell from the little video we just showed you, uh, trouble is coming in chapter 14, isn't it? Trouble is coming. Before we get into that, let me just tell you, it's great to see all of you here today. We are going through a study called The Story, and we are literally going through the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, 31 weeks. And I just want you to know, if this is your first time with us, and you're like, man, I've never read the Bible myself. This is something I would like to do. Then let me just invite you to jump in with us and, and continue the story with us. We, uh, uh, we're going through this resource here. It's called The Story. And uh, this is great portions of the Word of God arranged in chronological order so that it reads like a chapter book. You know, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter two, all the way to 31. And it will take you through the entire Bible. And it tracks the story of God. It's straight Scripture um, right from, from God's Word. And if that's something you're like, I want to do that, and I know it's my first time here, but I really want to do that, then I'm going to invite you to visit our welcome table today and grab your own copy of the story. We have these for you. It's a complimentary copy. It's our gift to you, and it's also our invitation to you to come join us in this exciting study. It won't take you long to get caught up. I think you'll get through the first 13 chapters just reading fairly quickly, and uh, come jump in and join us. We'd love to have you. One thing that we have seen very clearly on this entire journey so far, all the way up to four, chapter 14, is that out of everything, what has been so consistent is that God is like, there's just one thing I want you to do. He's telling all the Israelites, just one thing, and that one thing is this. I want you to understand that I am God alone. Me. The Bible refers to God by name, Yahweh. And so the one thing he wants people to know, Yahweh alone is God. Do you remember what he told the Israelites through our study so far? He said, I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. What does he mean by that? I'm a jealous God. What he means by that is, I'm not going to share you. That's what God's saying. He's like, you're my children. You're my creation. I want to do life with you, and I'm not going to share. I'm a jealous God. I don't want you chasing after idols or false gods. I'm a jealous God. I'm not going to share you. That's why God said, I'm a jealous God. Now, I don't know how many times in the first 13 chapters, I didn't go back and count, but I don't know how many times God said to the Israelites, worship me only. There was a bunch, but we can kind of mentally go through and track some of the times that we know for sure that God said that to them with absolute clarity. I'm thinking about when the Lord demonstrated to Israel and Egypt that he alone is God when he sent the 10 plagues into Egypt and to rescue the Israelites. Each one of those 10 plagues corresponded with one of the false gods that was worshiped in Egypt. It's like God saying, I alone am going to be Lord of all. The Lord put this exclusive worship of him in stone when he gave the law to Moses to be shared with all of the Israelites. And, and we know that, that uh, God inscribed the Ten Commandments on these stones and Moses shared them. And do you remember how they start? God said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, what? You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment's very similar. He forbids idol worship of any kind. You shouldn't make idols. You're not going to bow down and worship them. And it's all in this line. Of, I want to be your God. I am a jealous God. I'm not going to share you. 
Israel experienced judgment from God when they decided to create a golden calf and worship it. It didn't work out so well. They finally got to the promised land and, uh, and Joshua led them there and they followed the Lord. But when Joshua died, what happened? They turned to idols and they entered into a season that lasted some 300 plus years known as the time of the judges. And what marks that season in Israel's history is that every single person did as they saw fit. King David understood the great responsibility of being a leader of God's chosen people. He understood the unique privilege, the responsibility that came with it. And so when it came time for him to pass the reins of leadership to his son Solomon, David made it very clear to his son, you must serve the Lord your God only. Serve him alone and it will go well for you. God told him the same thing. But sadly, as we learn, Solomon did not hold true to that during his entire reign. For a few years, it was great. But then the Bible tells us that over time, as Solomon got older, he turned to many gods, the gods of his foreign wives, and they led him astray, and this ignited God's anger. So we're going to pick up right there where we left off last week. We're going to go to page 192. We're, kinda, we're going to bridge chapter 13 right into chapter 14. And on page 192 of your storybooks, this is 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9. It says this, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of, uh, the God of Israel, who he appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Now this is a devastating consequence of Solomon turning his back on God. God told him this is exactly what's going to happen. There's no surprise here, but it's still a devastating consequence, especially when you compare it to what they used to be like when King David, Solomon's father, was leading Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. And even during the first half of King Solomon's reign, there was a reflection. The Israelites reflected who God was, and everybody in the world could see God by what was happening in Israel. But later in Solomon's life, when he turned to idols, um, he stopped. The nation of Israel stopped reflecting who God was. It became a distorted reflection. And when people looked at Israel, they saw something that was not godly, something that was not holy. And it set the stage for Israel to be disciplined. So after Solomon dies, Rehoboam, who is his son, becomes king. Now, if you would say that word with me, Rehoboam. Rick, you said Rehoboam. I want you to say that because we don't ever say that word, ever. And there's going to be several names in chapter 14 that, that could get a little confusing. But King Rehoboam, this is Solomon's son. He takes over the reins of leadership from his father. And if you've read chapter 14, then you already know that he is one nasty punk. Okay, it's what he is. There's no other way to describe him. He's evil, he's mean, he's ruthless. And we learn in chapter 14 that, you know, even though God blessed Solomon with a lot of wealth, remember early in his life he prayed for wisdom and God gave him wisdom and he also gave him wealth and all these other things. 
Later in life, we learn that Solomon gained a lot of his wealth the old-fashioned way, high taxes and forced labor. And so what we have here in our text is that Rehoboam is the king, and then a group of Israelites come to him with a request. Now, before we find out what that request was, let me just point something out so so you don't miss this important detail. A few chapters ago, when all the Israelites looked out at all the other nations and said, everybody else has kings, we want a king. Remember when they said that? And they begged God, give us a king, give us a king. And God said, that's fine, I'll give you a king, but I just want you to know, if you reject me as a king and you get an earthly king, he will make your lives miserable. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? This right now, what hap- what's happening is a reflection of God's promise. A king will make your life miserable. And even King Solomon, what did he do? He taxed them to death and he forced them into um, awful labor. And God called it. God called it. So when Rehoboam becomes king, a crowd led by a guy named Jeroboam, say that word with me, Jeroboam, came to see the king, and he had a great large crowd with him. Now, Jeroboam, he's got a backstory. We're not going to get into that much today. If you read chapter 14, it unpacks a little bit of that backstory. But Jeroboam is a leader, and he comes with this angry crowd to see King Rehoboam, and they come with this one request. Do you know what that request was? It's like, King Rehoboam, your father Solomon made our lives pretty hard, and we're asking that you please ease up a little bit. You're a new king. It's a new day. Would you please bring some relief to the people? And King Rehoboam says, give me three days to think about it and come back and I'll let you know. And so during that three days, the Bible tells us that King Rehoboam went to the elders. These were the same um, um, people that, that counseled his father Solomon. And he said, what should I do? These people want me to ease the tension. What do you think I should do? And they said to him, you know what? If you will just lighten their load a little bit, they will love you and they will serve you forever. That's pretty good advice, don't you think? And he says, let me think about it. And then he says to all of his buddies, hey, all the people he grew up with, all these other nasty little punks that he grew up with that were entitled and think they are the kings of the world, all these guys, his friends, he says, what do you think I should do? Jeroboam and all these people, they want me to lighten the load. What do you guys think? And you know what they said? They said, ha, show them who's really boss. If they think your dad was rough, you show them what rough really is. You make life really tough on them. So what do you think Rehoboam did? Well, let's read about it. Page 194 in your storybook. This is 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 12. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And I don't even know what that means, but it sounds awful. I don't know what scourge you with scorpions means, but I don't want to experience it. And this is another one of those times, and maybe you've experienced this already as you read the story, and you're just like going, what were you thinking? Why did you make the different decision? And honestly, let me just tell you folks, this is a reflection of a godless man. 
This is a reflection of how far Israel has fallen away from the Lord. They're not consulting the Lord. They're not thinking about what the Lord wants. He is not thinking the way God wants him to think. And so this decision to make life even harder on his fellow brothers, the Israelites, that absolutely split the nation. Jeroboam and his many followers were like, fine, if that's the way you're going to be, we're out of here. And they defect, literally. When the Israelites got the promised land, it was divided into 12 parts. We're called, we call this the 12 tribes of Israel. Essentially, in this moment, because of Rehoboam's response, this harsh answer, 10 of the 12 tribes basically said, we're out, we're defecting. We're going to go do our own thing. We're not going to be here with you. We are leaving. They retreated to their tribal regions in the north, and they made Jeroboam king over them. So you have these ten nations named Jeroboam king. The two other tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they remained under the leadership of Rehoboam, and that is why this chapter, chapter 14, is called the kingdom torn in two, because it's divided. And here's the really sad part. Not just that they divided. Um, the really sad part is that Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they did evil in the eyes of God. You would almost understand that. Let's say, for example, Jeroboam said, hey, us 10 tribes are out of here because we're going to serve the one true God and you won't. That would almost be noble. What? That would almost be, they're doing, no, that's not what happened. They both, both kings did evil in the eyes of God. The king of Israel and now the king of Judah. All used to be one, now they're split. Israel and Judah. Both of these kings led the Israelites away from worshiping God. They, they worshiped idols with an intensity and a devotion that had never been seen in the Holy Land before. In a relatively short amount of time, the nation of Israel went from a people who were totally devoted to God to a people that was so consumed with the plurality of idol worship that they were unrecognizable as God's children. And so God sends a prophet to deliver a message to King Jeroboam, the king of these 10 northern tribes. And that is found on page 197. It's 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 9. And this is the message that God sent to Jeroboam. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. Now let that sink in for just a minute. This is the one true God telling a man, you personally have done more evil than all before you. That is a loaded statement. And then... He says, you have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger. That right there is some of, like, one of the heaviest verses in all of Scripture to ever be said to anybody from God. You've provoked me to anger, and no one's done more evil than you in the history of the world. That, that is saying something. Let me tell you also something that's going to happen here. Some of you are reading the story and you've got to chapter 14 and you're learning this for the first time and you really don't know what happens next. You're kind of excited. Every week I'm learning what's happening. Let me just kind of give you a little preview of what happens. Israel will never break free from this addiction to idol worship. That's sad news, isn't it? 
Israel will never break this addiction. We're not going to see him win over it. And as we will see in the coming chapters of the story, it's something they're always going to struggle with. Uh, Many kings will follow Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and they will all, many of them will lead Israel into more idol worship. Not all the kings do this. Only most of the kings will do this. This struggle with idol worship will carry in on from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, and it will still be a problem um, when the church gets started. The apostles, they were Jesus' disciples that became the leaders of the church, the apostles, they will continually be in the New Testament trying to lead people away from idol worship and to serve the one true God. So we're going to see this for the rest of the story. And you're like, oh my goodness, I thought we were almost done with this idol worship stuff. And I would also argue that not only is idol worship going to be a problem for the rest of the story, it is still a problem today in modern times in 2017. And I would say that idol worship today is a most dangerous threat to a Christian. Maybe you're wondering, how in the world is that possible? How can you say that? How can that be? How can you say that idol worship is a dangerous threat in the life of a Christian today and that it's still around? Because let's be honest, nobody makes images of gold or makes images of wood or stone and bows down to any of those kind of statues anymore. And honestly, I would be shocked if anybody in this room today did that. And in fact, if anybody in this day, today in this room makes yourself an idol and you're bowing down to worship it, we need to talk like today. We, we need to talk right after service. Don't go home. We're going to talk. If you're, but I highly doubt that, that us today think of idol worship in, in those ways. But if our understanding of idolatry is golden calves and wooden statues, then we really don't understand the dangers threatening our walk with God, do we? It says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, this is the Apostle Paul. He is dealing with some of these things with the New Testament church. And he says this, and he would be saying, if he was standing here, he would say it to us as well. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he's going to list off a, a, a whole long list of things that are part of your earthly nature. That's the stuff that God doesn't bless. It's the stuff that God's not a part of. It's, it's the stuff that, that, enters, that wants to enter into life. And God's like, I'm not blessing that. I'm not anointing that. That's not for me. That's something earthly. That's not me. And so Paul says, put to death those things. And then he says, these are what these things are. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And do you see the last couple words there that Paul says? Greed, which is what? Idolatry. Now, greed isn't a a golden statue. Greed isn't necessarily a, a wooden image that people are bowing down to. But Paul is bringing to our attention this thing called greed, which he says is idolatry. Now let's look at what greed is for just a minute and why this is idolatry. Um, your Bible says greed. Your Bible also may use the word covet. It's, it's the same family of words. It's this idea of always wanting more, whether it be more things or more pleasures, 
A greedy person is somebody who is never satisfied with what they have. They usually are envious of what other people have. And the Bible clearly says that greed is a form of idolatry. It's coveting things. It's putting things in place of God. A guy by the name of Richard Malik, he tried to sum up kind of what the Bible says about greed in a, in a succinct statement. And I like what he said. He said, greed places something or someone ahead of God. That's what greed, that's why it's an idol. Because it places something or someone in front of God. It is this longing for something that belongs to someone else or placing some pre-value on something not yet possessed. And Paul's like, look, church, th- this is idolatry today. It was idolatry back in Paul's day. It's still idolatry today. And with this understanding of idolatry, let me ask this question. Is there idolatry in our American culture today? And then I would follow that up with another question. Is there idolatry in the American church today? And do Christians in America struggle with this form of idolatry? I've said this, I was very specific why I said American, and you'll know why I put our nationality on there. I'm a firm believer, I've said this many times from up here, I'll say it many times more, that uh, we live in the greatest country on earth. I believe that. I've traveled other parts of the world, and every time I go anywhere else, I come back, and I'm, I'm, re- I'm reaffirmed, this is the greatest country on earth. Now, you're probably like me. We see things in our country that we don't like. And there's things that have transpired that I think God hates, and, and that our nation could possibly be held accountable for by God. But even with all of our problems, still the greatest country on earth. And the opportunities we have here are unlike many other places in the world. We have opportunities that are flat out non-existent in other parts of the world. You can literally in America come from nothing and make something out of yourself. And there's a lot of places in the world where you could have all the desire you want in the world and you'll never become anything. It's just You just won't do it. But in a great country like ours, I do believe that it is easier here to fall into the trap of being an idol worshiper. Idolatry in our culture and in our church is is evident in what I think two ways. There's more than that, but I want to point out two today because we just read a whole chapter about the nation of Israel that's getting ripped to pieces now. They're falling apart because of their idol worship. And I see that the same thing could happen to the American Christian today. That your life, your walk with God, the church could be really destroyed because something has come between God and his church. So let me just talk about a couple of things. There's more, but just a couple. The first one is this. Here's the first form of idolatry I think is threatening the Christian life today. It's this. We've already mentioned it. Paul did. Greed or covet. Greed and coveting amounts to um, idolatry, which is defined as putting something or someone ahead of God. And that's what it is. In Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, this is not unfamiliar to many of you. It might be brand new to others of you. But when Jesus gave his famous Sermon on the Mount, do you remember what he said in there one time? He said, no one can serve two masters. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. 
No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and, and, and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And he says, you cannot serve both God and money. So what does serving money mean? What does it mean for it to be one's master? It's simple. It's when the pursuit of money is greater than your pursuit of God. When your pursuit of money and wealth and acquired things is greater than your pursuit of God. This last week, I had the great privilege of, uh, of listening to a pastor start each day. We're at a conference with a bunch of high school students from our church. I see some of them over there. Great to see you guys. We're at a Christ and Youth Conference. All the leaders, we met early in the morning, and uh, one of the, there was a, a pastor there, and he led us all in devotions, and he really spoke to my heart the whole week. And one of the days that uh, he was leading us in these devotions, he told us a story about something he had to walk through in his life, and it kind of snuck up on him. He didn't even realize what was going on, but it was this issue of idolatry. And when he told me this story that I want to share with you, I was like, thank you, Lord. This is, ex I mean, the Lord just has a way. Maybe you can see it. Like, like I did. Lord has a way of bringing people and things into your life to help you understand the text at just the right time. And I knew we were going to be talking about this today. And he shared this story. And I, I want to share it with you. Um, he had been a pastor for his, basically his whole career. He was in his early 60s. I, I believe that's about where he was in his age. And uh, he told us a story. He said, you know what? My wife and I, all through our marriage and raising our children, we just never had much financial margin in our lives. We didn't even know what a savings account was. But all what we did was we trusted God. So everything they had that didn't pay the bills or get them through the next week, they would pour back in their ministry. And they just, you know, he said, by the time I got to my early 50s, I, I just didn't have a whole lot to show for, for anything. He said, I was one of those young ministers who thought it would be a good idea to opt out of Social Security. So I did that So because I didn't even have Social Security working for me. And he said, when I was in my early 50s, I had all of my kids were in college at the same time. He said, three kids all in college. Anybody have multiple kids all in college at one time? That's not a cheap adventure, is it? And he goes, it was tough. And I sat down with my financial advisor and I told him what I had. And, and uh, he says, so when do you want to retire? Because at the pace you're going, you're going to have to work till you're about 117. And as this pastor was telling the story, he said, I looked my financial advisor in the eye and I said, I don't know how it's going to work out, but we trust God. He's always taken care of us. He's always provided. Sure, it's been lean, and, and we, you know, but we just, I just know God's going to provide. Um, shortly after that, um, he, he, just, he didn't give us any details. He just said, I came into some unexpected money. And he said, by, by some people's standards, it probably wouldn't be a lot, but from, by my standards, I'd never seen anything so much. And he said, we were able to take that, and we put it right into a retirement thing, and, and we were able to start saving. And he said, about a year after that, I met with my financial advisor again, and he looked at my portfolio, and he said, man, you've made some incredible strides. And he says, I told you. Do you remember a couple years ago? I told you God would take care of us. He goes, oh, I remember. And he goes, God took care of us. Fast forward another year or two, all the kids are out of college now, and his wife went back to work, and then all of a sudden, um, they had started setting financial goals. This is where we want to be. This is what we want to do. This is where I want to be when I retire. And so his wife began working, and he said, in like a year or so, 
my wife and I went from really just living paycheck to paycheck to actually having margin in our lives. We had a great savings account. We were putting away everything we wanted to do um, in, in our retirement plan. Everything was going great. It was perfect. I was, uh, he goes, I couldn't have played this any better. Life was comfortable, and I never dreamed it could be so easy. And then he said, the Lord put in front of me this uh, thing that he wanted me to give to. And it was just so obvious that God said, I want you to give this. And he said, I pulled out my checkbook and I couldn't write the check. And he said, I wanted to write the check and I felt convicted, but I couldn't bring myself to write the check. And he said, it hit me like a ton of bricks. He goes, I went and I cried with my wife. And I said, we've got more than we've ever had in our lives and I can't give. Because the thought that was in my mind is if I give towards this, which I know God wants me to do, I won't achieve this, which, and he said, it, it hit me so hard because when I had nothing, I had no problem trusting God with everything. When I had nothing, I was the most generous guy in the world. But now that I have something, I'm not generous anymore. And he said, right then, God made it clear to me that I had fallen into the trap of idolatry. All of a sudden, what became the most important thing in my life was my portfolio and meeting that goal. And it was about to rob me of serving the Lord. Friends, you know the pot of lukewarm water I had here last week? He was describing his pot of lukewarm water that he had climbed into and the heat was slowly rising and he didn't know he was getting cooked. And he had to repent. And he had to get rid of his idol. He had to bring back God into focus and repent of that sin. Serving money means that your decisions are all financially based rather than submission to God. And in short, money can often get in the way of a great relationship with God. And I see that form of idolatry rampant in the American church, and I see a struggle and a fight in my own life with the very same things. Have you ever started a sentence like this? If I had blank, then I would be blank. Now you gotta fill in the gaps. And I confess, I've, I've, I've started many sentences that way. Yo, if I just had this, oh boy, would I feel like, like this. And if we flirt around with those kinds of things for too long, we are flirting around with an idol that wants to step in and be the God of your life and wants you to worship it. We need to recognize this is more than wishful thinking. This is flirting with idolatry. Now, let me be very clear about something. Even though I know I'm a little bit short on time, I do need to be very clear about this. Because when it comes to money and what the Bible says about wealth, it's often misunderstood. Greed is not synonymous with wealth. I'll be very clear about that. Just because somebody has a lot of money doesn't mean they're greedy. And it doesn't mean that they covet it at all. It doesn't mean that money is their master. Just because somebody has a lot doesn't mean that money masters them. And it doesn't mean they're bowing down to it in worship. And it would be wrong for any of us to pass judgment on somebody who has a lot. 
The Bible never condemns wealth. Did you know that? Never once does it condemn wealth. It does condemn any ill-gotten gains by which someone fails to love his neighbor. Oh, it has a lot to say about that. And it condemns putting money before God and subjecting oneself um, to this pursuit of wealth. It does condemn that. But it never says that wealth is wrong. And it would be wrong to judge somebody who has a lot and to think and assume they're greedy persons. They're not. Maybe they are, but it'd be wrong of us to judge. The Bible never says it's wrong, and I want to be clear on that. Jesus made it very clear what is right. He said, you know, you can take all the law, you can take everything written in the Old Testament, you can take everything that God said, and you can boil it down to these two things. These are Jesus' words. He says, love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That, my friends, is at the very heart of what it means to live as Christ and to be the kind of child of God that he wants you to be. And an idol is anything that comes between your love for God and your love for your neighbor in Christ's love. That's an idol. So loving God, loving others, greed and covenant gets in the way. I could say much more than that, but let's move on. The second thing I'd like to highlight is this. What is a modern-day idol? What are the things that wants to rip you apart from God by coming between you and God? I can tell you right now it's this. Other gods. Other gods. There's a fancy word we might uh, connect to that, and it's called syncretism. Syncretism. You know, one of the things that I highly value, I know you do too here in our great country, is that we have freedom of religion. We can worship and we can believe whatever we want. But we, in that freedom, have to guard our hearts against syncretism. Now, syncretism is this. It is the merging of what you believe as a Christian with the beliefs of other religions and what you create, whether you realize it or not, is this hybrid kind of faith where you've taken kind of the stuff you like about Christianity mixed with how you feel culturally about a lot of things and then you come up with this own belief. That's syncretism. And I believe it is a form of idolatry. God made it very clear to Israel, no other gods before him. And Jesus said it another way when he told um, the people of his day that has carried on to us. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. The exclusivity of faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation is a non-negotiable in the Christian faith. There's no other means of salvation except by the gracious, atoning death of Jesus Christ appropriated by our faith in him. Yet it's shocking how much syncretism is happening in the American church today. Let me give you a little example, maybe help you understand. Have you seen this bumper sticker floating around? That's not too unfamiliar. With. We, I, I think I see one of these every day on some car. It spells out the word coexist. Let me just walk you through. So, you know, you may not pay any attention to this, but the next time you see it on some car, um, you'll, you'll know what it means. The C is a crescent moon, and it signifies, that, that's the universal symbol for the nation of Islam. So that's that's uh, the Muslim faith it's representing. The O is the peace symbol. That's most people recognize that. It has other meanings as well. Most people recognize it as peace. The E, it's the uh, male-female symbols. You know, male and female. There's other, um, you know, parts of scientific equations, things like that. But I think most people recognize that's male-female. 
The next one is the Star of David. And most people believe that that's there to, to represent Judaism, the Jews. The eye, if you can see it, there's uh, what is commonly a, a Wiccan or a pagan, or some people say a Satanistic symbol uh, as part of the eye. The O, <clears throat> the, the, the S, is the, the Oriental yin-yang symbol to represent Eastern faiths and things. And then the T is represented of the cross, and it's used to represent Christianity. Now, they say that the origins of this bumper sticker is intended to promote peace and tolerance. That sounds very much American, doesn't it? In other words, my, I'd look at it like this. It's a bumper that sticker that epitomizes the phrase, can't we all just get along? There's probably a hundred different perspectives on this, on this sticker. Let, let me give you mine. When I see this bumper sticker, let me tell you how it makes me feel. I see it's something that represents how a lot of people in our society feel today and even in the church. That there's no real significant difference in what you believe. When I see this sticker, I see it saying, hey, pick one religion and be happy with it because one is just as good as another. When I see this sticker, I, I think it's saying, take the best parts of the religion you follow and enjoy life. When I see this sticker, I think it's saying that it doesn't matter what you believe, just be at peace and don't rock the boat, and the boat being the world. Don't rock it. Don't get all crazy and believe silly things that like what you believe is the only way to heaven. That's what this bumper sticker means to me. Now, you might be thinking, now, Joe, you're getting a little carried away here. It's just a bumper sticker. It, it's, it's probably, you know, you're probably overreacting. Maybe. Maybe. If I didn't see it so prevalent in our culture, if I didn't see it so prevalent among Christians. A recent study discovered that 56% of evangelical Christians, evangelical just, we'll just simplify it and say people who acknowledge the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Evangelical Christians, 56% of evangelical Christians believe that there are other religions that lead to eternal life. That same study spit out this information, that 50, only 59% of evangelical Christians believe the Bible to be the word of God literally true word for word you want to know why i wanted to do this so badly because christians today don't know the word of god that's why and i believe when you know god's word you know god better and when you when you're saturated with god's word you're not going to fall so quickly into nonsense like that bumper sticker same study revealed that only 58% of evangelicals attend church services once a week. So in other words, half of those people who claim to be Christians don't find it necessary to worship weekly. The body of Christ in America is drifting towards syncretism. Other gods, idol worship. It's seen in their relaxed view of who God is and how he feels about his creation. It is seen in the church's lagging definition of sin and Christians' response to it. It is seen in the liberalism and the relaxed state the church today has 
towards the things that God has never relaxed on. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, the apostle said, little children, he's speaking to the church, little children, guard yourselves from idols. I think this is a warning that supersedes time and cultures. I believe it's a warning that's just as much for us today as it was for the Christians in John's day. And if syncretism is idolatry, then it shows just how badly we need to listen to the Apostle John. So how do we beat this? That's a great question. If we're starting to recognize that idol worship is still a problem, that it's, the Israelites had a problem with it, it never ended, and it's still a problem with it today, it just may look a little bit differently. How do we beat it? Well, the same way it's always been beat. I think Joshua sums it up about as good as anybody, and I'll close with this. Joshua, the godly man who led the Israelites into the promised land, he said this to the Israelites before he died. He said, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How's your house? How's your house? Dear Heavenly Father,